Our sermon today is taken from 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Kelly. Friends, let's pray one more time before we enter into our sermon. Father, as we are ending our time in the book of 1 Peter, I pray that the truths and the claims that you have proclaimed through your apostle Peter to us be real in our hearts. And as we summarize and conclude everything today, I pray that you would be gracious to our minds as we think back and and connect all the dots together. Help us remind what's been said and let us see Christ. That in the end of all the matter, he receives all the glory, all the honor, all the power for what he has done on the cross for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So friends, we're gonna continue and end our series through First Peter. Today, we're going to do the last chapter, chapter 5, and we're going to do the whole chapter. And our next series is going to be uh, going through the, a series on the life of Moses. We're just going to be choosing passages from the book of Exodus, um, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll enter into that. And after that, we don't know what we're going to do. Maybe Romans, maybe something else. We'll, we'll keep you updated on that. So at this point, you know, at the last, at the last sermon of this book, it may be good to ask, what was the point of 1 Peter? What was it all about? Now, if you remember the context, Peter was writing to a bunch of Christians that were scattered all throughout Asia Minor, right? Places like Galatia, Pontus, Bithynia. Totally, uh, today, uh, geographically, this Asia Minor, all these regions make up what we know as modern-day Turkey. Why were they scattered? Because there was intense persecution that came from the Greco-Roman culture at the time, particularly Nero and, 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 and the Romans hated Christians. They, they persecuted them. They didn't like the Bible's exclusive claim that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and no one gets the Father but through him. They didn't like that, so, so they're persecuted. And you know, the church, we've missed it, 
right? In a lot of ways, we've missed it. And often cultural pushback is rightfully deserved. You know, you've seen and I'm sure heard of cases of spiritual abuse, where church leaders get their way using their spiritual power and authority to coerce people in their care. When that happens, culture pushes back. I think that's fine. That's something that we need to look into. And, you know, cases of financial theft, I'm sure you've seen that pop around a lot. Recently, I saw a reporter questioning a few pastors in the U.S. who used church money to buy private jets to fly around to places, you know, to preach. And their reasoning, when, when they were questioned, their reasoning was, it's because it, it's not good for their hearts to be around, and I quote, the devils that live in economy class. <laughs> so like me, you know, it's not good to be around the devils that live in economy class before they prepare a message so they have to have a private jet to kind of seclude themselves, you know. That's good when culture pushes back on that, <laughs> you know. It's like, that's not right. That, we've missed it. We've missed it, and we deserve pushback in many ways. But this wasn't the case for the scattered Christians uh, that Peter is writing to. They weren't experiencing pushback because they messed up or because they lied or because they stole. They weren't being reviled because they were doing something wrong. They were simply uh, being reviled and persecuted because they were holding on faithfully to Christ and to his word, that he is only, only truth and only life. And Peter, for four chapters, have been saying to these Christians, one, keep on holding faithful to Christ, you know, don't give in. And two, don't lash out. Don't retaliate back. If, if you're being reviled, if rocks are being thrown to you unjustly, endure it, absorb it, and love them through it. Be compassionate to others. So four chapters, be faithful, don't give in, be compassionate, don't lash out. Okay? And now at the end of the series, if you're anything like me, you've been hearing that, but you've probably also been saying, you know, that's a, that's a tall order. Being faithful to Christ, you know, I can't even be faithful to going to bed on time. You know, don't revile those who persecute me. Have you, have you seen what I did to that person that cut me in line yesterday? You know, I can't do that. Well, that's exactly why Peter here in the last, last chapter of the book, he gives us a support system. He says you don't have to do it on your own, precisely because you can't do it on your own. What is that support system called? It's called the local church, okay? There are a few things about the local church in this text that I want to point out. Uh, let's point out three of them. One, the reason for its existence. Two, the perspective it must keep. Three, the pride it must forego. The reason for its existence, the perspective it must keep, and the pride it must forego. All right. And I know we're talking about the church, and maybe not everybody here is Christian. Wherever you are in your walk with Christ, you know, whether you're an old Christian who's been walking with Christ for a long time and you love the church, hopefully this passage will be encouraging to you and solidifying to you and reorient what it means to do church. If you're unsure about the church, if you're suspicious about the church, you know, what's the big deal? Why can't we just have a Bible study and call it a day? You know, why, why formalize this whole church thing? I hope this will be clarifying to you of why Christians do that. And third, if you've been hurt by the church, and I don't think that's a small number, if you've been hurt by the church, if they've done something that disappointed you, I hope this can be therapeutic to you as we make sense of why the church often derails from its original purpose, okay? One, the reason for its existence. Now you're asking, where in the world did he get local church from this passage? I don't see the word local or church anywhere. Well, okay. Think about what makes up a local church. Who makes up a local church? In its bare bones, it's elders and members. 
That's the local church. When there's elders shepherding members and there's members accountable to elders, that's the local church, right? And verse 1, who do you see Peter addressing? I exhort the elders, the presbyters. That's the name. That's the Greek. The pre- I exhort the elders among you. He's talking to ordained elders who most likely have been scattered all throughout Asia Minor because they were persecuted from wherever they originally was living at. The elders among you. Okay, so to clarify, let me ask you this. Your Bible study that you do with your Christian friends, is that a church? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that all Christians are part of the universal church, the big C church. We're all a part of God's church, right? But we also see in the scriptures, there's a second layer that God commands us to do. God commands this universal church to also organize itself locally as particular or local churches. So what does that look like? Okay, does that look like just Christians in the area just decided to hang out with each other? No, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Let's just put up a few verses just for me to backtrack a little bit to convince you. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Uh, This is why I left you in, in Crete, Paul says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders, presbyters, same word, in every town as I directed you. So apparently Christians came to Christ in this one town and he said, don't just let them scatter and do their own thing. Appoint elders. Have a system where elders are shepherding members. Acts 14, verse 21 and 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And when they had appointed elders, presbyters, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice, they appointed elders in what? Every church. That means there's multiple churches. There's one big C church, right? All of God's people. But within that, there are every church that have elders that lead them, that shepherd them. That's a local. What makes a local church is the elder member relationship. When there is a qualified ordained elder who are accountable over a specific group of Christians, and when a specific group of Christians hold themselves accountable over those elders, under those elders, okay? And that's what we see in verses 1 to 5, a local church. Verse 1, Peter addressing ordained elders. Elders to do what? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. In other words, the Christians that are around you, who is also probably been scattered and displaced because of all this persecution, everything's a mess, okay? Okay, elders, look around. Are there Christians there that need shepherding? Okay, gather them, care for them. But not just informally, like in a hangout way, formally. Skip, skip the verse 5. We'll cover the rest here soon. It says, likewise, you who are younger, maybe age-wise, but not primarily age-wise, because elder here isn't, isn't referring to old and age. It's, it's referring to a church office, and a presbyter, an elder. Younger here refers, I think, ultimately primarily to spiritual maturity, okay? But it could include age. Likewise, you who are younger, spiritually, subject to those elders, formalize it, Make some kind, have some kind of formality, you know, elders and, and members. Here's what Peter's saying. You want to stay faithful to Christ and his word through the fiery persecutions of Rome or through whatever culture you're in. You want to do that? You don't want to give in? Hmm? You want to remain compassionate to those who persecute you instead of lashing out to them? Here's what you need to do. Plant local churches or join one. Be a part of a local church. 
That's why the local church exists. It's an institution that helps Christians stay faithful to Christ and his word. And it's an institution that helps Christians remain compassionate when they're being reviled for their faithfulness to Christ and his word. But you know why the local church ends up existing today? You know what we end up being about mostly? And you know why we hurt so many people? It's because for the most part, we exist today to get big. That's the goal, to get big. If you look at the type of people that are often championed in local churches, and if you look at the job qualifications generally out there for pastors, it has to make you wonder whether or not we've forgotten our original purpose and made size the end-all be-all. Think about it. Who are the type of people that are often championed in your local church? Or maybe in CCC, let's be self-critical here. You know, are they the extroverts who are able to attract and gather people? Are they championed more or are the introverts championed more? Who's championed more? Who's usually given more praise? The type A leader person who can like, you know, organize things and gather people or the type B quiet types? Who's championed more? The people who have the financial resources to fund big events and extend the reach of the church or those who don't have much financial resources? Who's usually championed more? I don't even need to answer that or convince you because you know the answer. Why is that? Because it's so prevalent. Why, why are they more championed than the others, I wonder? And if you look at the job requirements for pastors, I gotta be honest, the skill set listed on these job applications often sound like we're hiring CEOs that can grow companies rather than shepherds that are qualified to preach and minister the word of God to the people of God. That's, that's the characters that are being sought out. I'm not saying that's all bad, okay? I'm not saying it's always bad to put an extrovert, a type A, rich person in a visible ministry position. That's totally fine. Nor is it bad for a pastor to have qualities found in a CEO. That's okay too. Their responsibilities overlap sometimes. Nor am I saying exponential growth is a bad thing. Of course it's not. But I know that you feel what I'm feeling without having to explain it more, right? There is this overt angst and priority and growth and getting big, even when it comes to the expense of faithfulness to biblical truth. Okay, lest I sound like an angry pastor criticizing every other church out there, okay, let's continue talking about this passage with our own church on the chopping block, okay? How can we know or identify whether or not a local church, let's say Covenant City Church, is becoming more and more concerned about exponential growth rather than faithfulness to the gospel message, okay? Well, our passage here says it starts with the elders. It does. One, you'll see the elders and the leadership begin to refuse to sacrifice. Look at verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Now put yourself in the shoes of these persecuted Christians back then. These, these weren't just like, hey, you know, you're dumb for believing in the gospel. No, they were like being burned alive. <laughs> why, why would an ordained elder in that area be unwilling to step up and shepherd the flock of God that is among them? I mean, a bunch of people being persecuted, okay, and somebody stands up and says, I'll represent them. <laughs> Who's going to end up absorbing all the persecution? That guy, <laughs> You can just imagine the Christians back then, you know, they got this letter from Peter and they're reading it and they're going, you know, all right, 
who's, who's an ordained elder here? And everybody's like, not me. Don't tell them I'm ordained. You know, nobody wants to step up. Nobody wants to do it. Why? Because they're going to end up getting the blow, okay? For a sign, elders aren't willing to sacrifice. Let's get more detailed here. What signs can you see when an elder of a church are becoming less and less willing to sacrifice? Verse 2, it says, they won't be eager in their task, if you continue it. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Don't do it for shameful gain. Do, do it eagerly. You know, they'll be excited. The, the elders will start being excited to do things that benefit them, but uneager and unwilling to do things that don't benefit them, that require sacrifice. That's a sign of when the elders are moving that direction. You know, meeting with a rich, rich church member, you know, sign me up. You know, giving a big talk with a big spotlight on me, sign me up. Counseling a depressed member? Uh... You know, visiting an elderly member at the hospital, not too eager about that. It's the first sign. A church is beginning to slip away from its original purpose when the elders refuse to sacrifice, seen perhaps by an aura of uneagerness in accomplishing all the tasks that God has sovereignly handed to them. Second sign. They begin to commit adult bullying. Look at verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Don't domineer over them. Be examples. There's many versions of adult bullying, of domineering. One is that this is the not as heavy example. This is the lighter example. Uh, the elders will start to have a double standard. You know what a double standard is? A double standard when it's okay for you to do it, but it's not okay for other people to do it. An example of this is, for example, the pastor is always late to the meetings, but it's okay for him to be late because he's the pastor. But when other people are late, that's not okay. When other people are late, they get in trouble. That's a subtle version of adult bullying. They're using their position of power to excuse them from things they'll hold other people accountable to. If this gets intense, a more intense example of adult bullying is the church starts to feel, you can just feel it. It feels cultish, you know? It's, it's so easy to get in, it's impossible to get out. Everyone starts feeling exhausted. And they find it motivationally deep inside being driven primarily by guilt. These are all signs of domineerance. And the ministry as a whole will, will feel more coercive then it is persuasive. That's what you'll feel. So two signs a church is beginning to slip away from its original purpose. One, the elders are less and less willing to sacrifice. And two, the elders begin to commit various versions of adult bullying. Three, the elders start to think that they own the local church that they're leading. Look at verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now that's meant to be an encouragement, right? A crown of glory back then is a prize that athletes would get after they accomplish a race or, or an athletic event. So it's an encouragement. Elders, you know, and those who are laboring for the gospel, be encouraged. You will receive a crown, a crown of glory. But I think this verse also, if not more so, a warning. Look at the language. When the chief shepherd arrives, saying what? You're not the chief shepherd Pastor, these people don't belong to you. They belong to the one who died for them. So when the leadership, the elders, the pastor refuses to sacrifice, are unaware of adult bullying, and begin to feel like the church belongs to them, that means they've grown inward. That means they're starting to do ministry, not for the glory of Christ, but for themselves. Do you see how it's all connected? 
If the leadership is doing church for their own self-gain, not for the glory of Christ, after a while, what's going to happen? The church as a whole is going to start doing ministry not for the glory of Christ, but the church as a whole is going to start looking inward, and they're going to exist for their own gain, for their own honor, for their own comfort. And if the church is there, if that's the case, what's going to happen when faithfulness to the gospel message and to the scriptures require them to sacrifice things? What's going to happen when following Christ requires them to sacrifice their honor? What's going to happen when following Christ requires them uh, to lose their comfort? It's very likely they're going to give in. You know what? Here's the things that we're going to start saying. You know, let's choose songs that don't talk about sin as much. No, nobody wants to hear about sin. Don't do that. You know, let's, let's just talk about other things that are more tickling to the ear. You know, when Jesus said he's the only way, the truth, like he's the only one, ah, that sounds a bit too exclusive. You know, let's not do that. Nobody wants to hear that. We're going to give in. Because we're not doing this for Christ, we're doing this for ourselves. The main priority is self, size, comfort, honor. Or we could, that's one option, we could give in. Here's another option. We could lash out. We could lash out. In order to protect ourselves and our own comfort and our own honor, we lash out. We fight back. Giving in or lashing out will be the result of a Christian or a church who is living life and doing ministry for their own gain and not for the glory of Christ. And it starts with the elders. Now, you know what's funny to think about? Those are exactly the two things that Peter, our author of this letter, did a long time ago, wasn't it? Remember before he wrote this letter, when, when Jesus was being captured in Garden of Gethsemane, who was the one that took out a sword and cut the soldier's ear off? Peter, the guy that wrote this letter, he lashed out. And then when Jesus was being questioned by the um, by the Pharisees and, and people around them and, you know, people saw him and they were like, hey, aren't you a follower of this guy? What did he say? No, I, I don't know him. He gave in. He lashed out and he gave in. Peter here is talking as somebody who's made those mistakes. He knows how hard it is to remain faithful and stay compassionate. You can't do it alone. You can't. Organize, formalize amongst you a local church and walk through this together, but formalizing it isn't enough. There's another huge piece. Go to verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See? Formality, this kind of like elder member saying, I do the vows, formality without humility won't do you anything. You can be a member of a local church, formally, but never go to its worship services. You never got involved. You never give. You never seek counsel from its elders. That means you become a member just out of formality and not truly because you're humble and you admit that you need it. Members who are just doing it formally are not clothed with humility. They're clothed with self-sufficiency. But you know why members are often tempted to do that? Yes, because of their own sin and their own pride, true. But oftentimes, they do that because the elders aren't clothing themselves with humility either. Look at verse 5 again. The command to clothe yourself with humility, who is it directed to? All of you. Meaning who? Members and elders. Elders, clothe yourself with humility. You know, but often we don't. We clothe ourselves with self-promotion. 
We're not leading in the way that verses two and four says. We rather do it for ourselves. And members, people can smell that from a mile away and they say, forget this. I'm not gonna trust myself to this. And they be reclusive. No, both of you, elders, members, don't just do it formally. Do it truly. Organize yourself in a local church and then clothe yourselves with humility. If the formal institution is the firewood, your humility is a spark that'll make it burn. Okay, formalize it, walk in it, all of you, humbly. Don't just do the motions, but actually carry out what you formally agreed upon authentically, okay? And now, Peter continues, as you do that, okay, as you formalize and truly do local church together, you have to hold on to these perspectives. Point number two, the perspectives it must keep. First perspective, the church has to remember that the persecuting fire around them that is against the gospel, that does not believe in the exclusive claim of Christ, whatever it is that they receive from that, and back then it was pretty harsh fire, it's all a part of the story. They have to remember that. It's tempting to think that our sufferings in our lives is not God's will. But then the good things in our lives is God's will, right? The bad things aren't, the good things are. It's easy to think that way, but then you read verse 6 and you see Peter saying, no, the bad things are too. Humble yourselves, therefore, in this situation, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That phrase, the mighty hand of God, that was used once in the book of Exodus and six times in the book of Deuteronomy, always in reference to how God is the one who orchestrated the whole Exodus narrative. Remember when Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians and then God redeemed them out of Egypt and saved them? That whole thing, that whole story, was under God's mighty hand. What's Peter saying here? That this persecution from Nero, it's not plan B. This is all a part of God's mighty hand. And I know it's hard to acknowledge that God is the one who has ordained it, but if you don't, if you don't acknowledge that, if you don't believe God is sovereign over your sufferings, you know what's going to happen? Your prayers won't catch traction in your heart. It won't. Look at verse 7. You won't be able to, as verse 7 says, call your, cast your anxieties unto him. You're not going to be able to truly pray and cast your anxieties unto him. Why not? Think about it. If I believe that God is only in control over the parts of my life that brings me happiness and God's not in control over the parts of my life that bring me pain. In other words, the parts of my life that's painful, that's not under God's mighty hand. It kind of maybe slipped through his hand or snuck itself under his hand into my life. That means he isn't fully in control of those sufferings in the first place. So why pray to him? He's not in control of them. A long time ago, uh, some uh, family of mine is from Padang, and I went to Padang twice. I, I need to go again, just because it's cool. Um, I want to go there, and I remember a long time ago, they brought me to a chicken farm, and I think it was my uncle, I can't remember who it was, but he brought out a chicken by the feet, like, you know, grabbed it by the feet and just brought it out, you know, and said, hey, this is chicken. I'm like, I know, you know. <laughs> and he just wanted to show how they do it there in, in, in Padang. So it took, took up by the feet. But then I remember one chicken escaped. He, it slipped through the gates, okay? And, and it took about four or five people to catch it. We were just chasing it around. It was quick, you know, it, it juked everybody, you know, it was, it was doing its own thing. And if we believe that suffering in our lives is kind of like that chicken that slipped its way out of the gates, outside of God's sovereign hand, outside of it, somehow the suffering outsmarted God, 
you know, and God's kind of running around wild <laughs> trying to catch it. it. If that's the case, if that's our worldview, then why ask God to take it away? He can't do anything about it. Why pray? Why ask him in the first place? <laughs> why cast your anxieties onto him? He has no control over it. He was outwitted by it in the first place. The only way your heart will truly be affected by your prayers about casting your anxieties to God and not just mumbling them, okay, the only way it's going to catch traction is when, when you say, deliver me from this pain, you actually believe that pain didn't slip itself out of the gates. That pain didn't run havoc, is not running havoc uh, wildly in your life. The only way you're going to really, that prayer is going to catch traction is if you believe that that Bible, biblical came, that God is holding it by its feet with his mighty hands. And see, if you believe that, and you also believe what, what Peter says in the end of verse 7, he cares for you. He is in control of your pain, and he cares for you. You know what you'll begin to say? Your prayers will not sound like this. Quick, 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 God, catch the chicken. Your prayers aren't going to feel like that. It's going to sound like this. I don't know why you've ordained this to be here. I, I don't know why following you is costing me so much. I don't. But you are God, and I am not. Take it away if possible. I'm not a pain junkie. But if this be my cup, I will follow you. I won't abandon you. I'll trust you. Let your will be done. Sounds a bit like what Jesus said in the garden, doesn't it? That's what Peter means here in verse 8. Be sober-minded. Think Think, use your logical reasoning. When the fog comes, it's going to be hard to see objectively. It is. But be sober-minded. Don't suppress the suffering. You know, don't pretend like anxieties don't exist. It says cast your anxieties onto him, assuming you were anxious about something. It's there. Use your sobriety. Think, okay? Pull back for a second when you're in the fog and you're squinting and all you're looking at is what, pull back a little bit. Think about the big picture. Get a bird's eye view here. What's going on? It's not that Nero outwit God, but God orchestrated this fiery persecution to happen in Asia Minor, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and then he scattered his people throughout this fiery region and said, plant churches there. This is kind of the picture. God turned on the stove, he heated the frying pan really hot, and then he threw his church right in the middle of it. <laughs> Why? What good could come out of that storyline? Well, I, I don't know all the good that came out of it, but I do know one, and you do too. You know all this near persecution, it happened around 54 AD in Asia Minor, right? Regions like Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia. You know the statement of faith that we read earlier? The Nicene Creed? That was written in 325 AD, 271 years later. Tons of churches and, and church leaders from, from these regions came together, right, in Nicaea, and for the first time ever, a church council was, was happening, the first time ever in history, to summarize robust biblical summaries of who God is, who the triune God is. What could be more important than that? And God has used that biblical, faithful summary of, of, of the Bible of who God is to unite churches globally and to minister to other churches, including ours, just now, as we read it. You know where the city of Nicaea is located in? In a region called Bithynia. Does that region sound familiar to you? It should, 
because it's one of the regions that Peter addressed in this letter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, to the exiled in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You know what this means? That apparently, the Christians in Bithynia who received this letter from Peter in 54 AD planted these churches Peter told them to plant. They persevered in the fire for 271 years. And you know what was forged out of that fire? A faithful, robust, biblical summary of who God is that God has been using to minister to other local churches in a global scale all the way to CCC this Sunday, 1,600 years later. That's what came out of the fire. Be sober-minded. This is not plan B. God is not running around trying to catch suffering that slipped out of the cage. He's holding it in his mighty hand, and he loves you. There's a bigger picture here. Be sober-minded. This is how, verse 8, you're going to resist the adversary. That's how you resist the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone by keeping sober-minded of this grand narrative in a local church context. The adversary is going to say this. Give in. Give in. Don't hold fast to Christ. Leave him. Don't you want to get big? Don't you want to get more members, more money? Don't scare people away with the exclusive claims of the gospel. You've been talking about those two services for a while now, CCC. You know, don't you want that? Hmm? Give people what they want. Tickle their ears. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about God's wrath. Don't talk about his justice. You'll stay small that way. You'll be persecuted that way. You'll lose everything that way. Be sober-minded, church. Verse 9, resist that way of thinking. Be firm in your faith. This fire will not consume you. Your dross to purify is why it's here, as we sung in our hymn earlier. God and his mighty sovereign hand is all over it, and he cares for you. And oh man, you think the Nicaea story was the amazing part of the story? That's just one strand of the story. Just wait. Wait till it all comes together in the end. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Just wait. Just wait till Christ and his glory is revealed. Wait till all the stories, all the pieces fall in place. Wait till you see this grand story in Ultra HD. It'll be such a vision that your faith will end up being, as verse 10 says, restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established. Friends, if our purpose of doing church is for ourselves, if we have lost sight of Christ and his glory, if we neglect the things he's called us to proclaim and be faithful, if we're more worried about numbers and confirming ourselves and strengthening ourselves and establishing ourselves by getting bigger and bigger and bigger, if that's, if that's the goal, we may get big, but we're a big gathering of what? What are we gathering around? We may be big, but we'll be exhausted. The leadership will be exhausted and the servant teams, oh my, they're the first ones that feel it, aren't they? The servant teams will be exhausted. We may be big, but our egos will be inflated. Tribalism will start to happen. Competition with other churches. That's why we've been hurting people left and right. We've taken a beautiful God-ordained institution and we've ran it to the ground, making it all about ourselves and our glory rather than Christ. We exist 
The church exists to help those who trust in Christ as Lord and Savior to stay faithful to their king. And we're, we're here to encourage those Christians to display the love of their king who died for them on the cross when other people revile them for it. Be sober-minded, okay? Think about the grand narrative. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you make this whole thing about us, it'll be a mess, okay? Let him establish you and confirm me. For to him, as Peter says in verse 11, belongs dominion forever and ever. Amen. And you know, as you pull back, as you think about the grand narrative, also see other churches in this country, in this world, that's going through the same thing. Look at the end of verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, he's saying. And then verses 12 to 13, it's in the passage, so I I do have the responsibility to explain it. Um, It sounds like just a you know, like an ending. It's not. Peter here lists different people. So, Sylvanus, uh, who's delivering the letter. Mark, who's John Mark, who's Peter's interpreter. You've seen the book of Acts. Also in the beginning of verse 13, there's this weird she who is at Babylon. That's not referring to a particular woman in Babylon. She here refers to the global church, the bride of Christ, right? She. And Babylon is not specifically the nation of Babylon, but rather the situation of being in exile, okay? Babylon was the nation that captured and exiled God's people in the Old Testament and used here by Peter as the mascot for being in a state of exile. So she who is at Babylon really is the whole bride of Christ, the church who is in exile around the world. We're there with you. Have you ever had a problem in life and what you need the most is not solutions for it? It's not advices for it. Have you ever been in such a rut that what you need the most is somebody saying, I'm with you. I know how you feel. I've been in the same boat. I get it. That's what Peter's doing here. You're not alone. Keep going. We're all suffering for Christ. Together, Peter's saying, we know how you feel. You're not alone. Hold fast to your king as we do to ours. And keep in mind his mighty hand. Don't give in, don't lash out. But Peter doesn't end there, okay? He doesn't end with the church. He ends with someone else, with someone else who knows how it feels, with someone else who knows how it feels to be rejected by the culture, to be reviled, to be shamed, to be unjustly persecuted. Peter ends with Jesus. Let's go to our last point. The pride, it, the church, the pride the church must forgo. You know, as a church carries out her mission on earth, as we try to do that here in CCC, you know what I find, at least if you're like me, what my sinful heart slips into? I fall into this mentality of a holy huddle, right? It's easy to think that we're being persecuted because we are just inherently more spiritual or holy than people out there, right? We're more, more holy than the culture, and because we're more holy inherently than the culture, we're being persecuted. I think that mistake in my thinking is the reason why I have such a hard time forgiving those who wrong me and perhaps you as well. You know, the fuel that allows us to hold a long-term grudge on somebody, the fuel is pride. You know, when someone cuts you in line and you think, if I was them, I would never cut in line, you know, or, you know, if somebody joined the riots last month and you say, you know, if I was them, I would have never joined those riots. You know, I would have been more you know, or if somebody cuts you in traffic or, you know, if if somebody's prideful about their money and you say, if I had that much money, I would never be prideful, you know. Um, 
And some of us are saying, you know, I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. And that could be true. If you were them, you wouldn't have cut in line. You won't be private for your money. You would never have joined the riot, I don't think. But, but think deeper again about that. Take that claim a bit deeper. Take it a step deeper. You're claiming, if you're claiming if I was them, meaning, not that you're just in their shoes, meaning that if I lived their exact life, if I had their exact parents, if I grew up under their exact family, if I had the same exact level of education as them, if I was exposed to the exact uh, subculture they've been drenched in, if I had the same exact set of serotonin and neurotic pathways in my brain with them, if I was them, I would have done it differently. You see, when you say it that way, it's a huge, you're actually saying a huge assumption there. That's a bit, you know, you can't know. If you were exactly them, you would do it. If you say that, what you're saying is you're making an unsupported claim that there's something inherently better about you than them, that if you live the same exact life they lived, you'd turn out better. You see how that's, that's, a, that's a stretch? That's an assumption? And you see how prideful that is? But I think the church often thinks like that. We're just inherently better people than people out there. You know, that's why we hold on to grudges a lot. <laughs> What does the Bible say? Romans 5, 8, and 10. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're not any better. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were enemies of God. We're not any better. Look, you know why you love Jesus? You know why you love him? You know why you have a relationship with him? You know why you're walking with the desires that want to glorify him and live your life according to the gospel? Last verse. It's because you're in him. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And why are you in him? Why do you have a relationship with Christ? Because you're inherently better than other people who don't? No. You're in Christ. You have a relationship with God because Jesus stood up when we deserved what everybody else deserved and he said, I'll represent them. I'll take the blow. You know why you'll have an unfading crown of glory? Because Jesus took his off and laid it down for you. You know why you'll be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established? Because Christ laid down his strength and was crushed to the core for your sins, for my sins. And if he didn't, you and I would have been exactly the same as everyone else that's not in him. There is nothing inherently better about us. You're in Christ because Christ was cut off. When they persecute you, the fuel that's going to make you hold a grudge on them is thinking that you wouldn't persecute yourself if Christ didn't save you. Forgo of that pride. Love them instead. You want to stay faithful, Christian, to your king who died for you? You want to not lash out to those who persecute you for your faith in the gospel? Then, formally join a local church, but not just formality. Really, really join. And encourage each other um, to not do it for ourselves, but for his glory. And remind each other constantly of this grand narrative. And that they're not alone. That you're here with them. And lose our pride. Let us lose our pride, thinking that our inclusion into Christ and his church was a result of our own inherent spirituality or morality. Every one of us would have been his enemy if it was not for the cross and his mercy and grace. 
That's the application of how to stay faithful as a Christian and represent your king until he comes again. Now, as we end our series in 1 Peter, I think it's edifying and right for us to join together and read out loud the fruit that was forged through gospel endurance that our brothers and sisters in Bithynia persevered through for 271 years. Let us be ministered by that fruit again. I want to read out loud together as a church one more time today the Nicene Creed. Please join with me as we proclaim to ourselves and to the world who it is we worship and who it is deserve all glory and power and dominion. Church, what do you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, be with us as a bunch of redeemed people, but yet with old habits and selves and old loves and old idols that we worship, primarily ourselves, still clinging so hardly unto us. Have mercy upon your church. Let the elders here in this church, those who are currently ordained and those who are to be ordained, never lose sight of why they do ministry, not for social status gain, not for financial gain, but for the glory of the one who represented them and took the blow they deserved unto himself. And Father, as your gospel and your word is ministered to your people, I pray that your spirit would make that truth effective in their hearts. Pure fuel will it be when you do. And Father, ignite it. Let this church, help this church, be an example of what it means to be faithful, but yet winsome and loving and caring when others push back against your holy scriptures. But Father, none of this would happen unless we love you deeply. None of this would happen unless we love you truly, unless the object of our worship and love is not ourselves. Help us fall in love with you deeply. Build your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.